Hello, I'm Gareth Stokes, a partner in DLA Piper's Global Intellectual Property and Technology Group. Today on the DLA Piper Tech Law Podcast, I'm in London with two of my fellow IPT partners to discuss legal issues that arise from new artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies. Larissa Park from Boston and Janji Olivi from Milan. Larissa, do you want to tell us what you've been doing recently? Hi Gareth, great to see you again. Uh, last time I think I saw you was in Copenhagen, so nice to see you in London. Uh, thanks for having me here to talk about AI. I'm a partner in the Boston office of DLA Piper where I focus on patent um, counseling and strategic advice to startups and larger companies and focus specifically on the tech side in software and artificial intelligence. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to have you here. Janji, I've caught up with you many times both on work matters and ski trips. So. Yes, yes. We're not talking about the ski trips, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's great to be with both of you. And I am a technology and media lawyer, uh, focusing particularly on outsourcing and data protection projects. And this is a very, very exciting time because artificial intelligence is changing a lot the scenario and is heavily affecting both outsourcing and data protection. So for the first section, we're going to be looking at how AI changes the approach to projects. We've been used to a world where if a task was done by a computer, it was done in a completely predictable algorithmic manner. If a contract for services required any judgment or evaluation against subjective criteria, that involved a human workforce. With machine learning, what are some of the structural changes to contracts that we're seeing as a result of these AI developments? So Janji, if I could perhaps come to you first. For major projects, IT or business process outsourcing, system integration work, etc., we're used to certain market standards in contracts. How are you seeing these to evolve to address artificial intelligence? Yes, uh, contracts have changed a lot with artificial intelligence. I would say that uh, we should get no longer be used to the traditional uh, services agreement, uh, the classic uh, software as a service, infrastructure as a service, and platform as a service, whereby we are within a more wider everything as a service and more cloud-based type contract. Um, vendors are pushing the standard terms in a less friendly manner for customers. And I have to say there's some changes in certain clauses, in particular with regards to contractual controls. This is, uh, um, for instance, relates to uh, service levels and service credits. Whilst the traditional outsourcing agreement are more tied to uh, human errors and the focus, for instance, on uh, minors, um, uh, failures with regards to the service levels, uh, within a, a wider uh, artificial intelligence uh, context, there's a tendency to uh, look at um, more catastrophic, catastrophic failures. Because with artificial intelligence, uh, it either works or generally doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it's a very, very big problem. Um, another point is, and this relates also to our uh, data protection practice, and it relates also to the GDPR of which we may touch uh, later on, um, is, in, is, is getting more difficult on how the uh, machine works. And so the oversight of how artificial intelligence works is becoming more and more of an issue. 
And this is actually relevant from a data protection perspective as well, because often it may be required for customers of artificial intelligence-based services to understand what is the rationale, because they have to explain that also to their end clients. So we understand this is a point, and it makes sometimes difficult the negotiations within the context of artificial intelligence contracts. Okay, thanks for that. I think that, um, that there's also been uh, a fairly sig significant impact on some of the, the commercial aspects of these deals as well. I'm very used to the idea that you kind of have per unit charging, etc. How are you seeing the commercial aspects of, of those deals change? Well, uh, customers are um, happier to uh, commit and, uh, and vendors as well to commit to long-term uh, savings. This is actually a very relevant point because uh, customers generally when they enter into a, an artificial intelligence based services agreement uh, intend to save also in terms of uh, uh, human resources. And uh, um, so this brings to, partic particularly in the long term, to substantial savings. And there's a tendency uh, within uh, uh, the current market standards is to share these savings between the customers and the uh, suppliers. There's also a change, a swift in, in, the, in the models. We will see uh, less time and materials uh, or uh, full-time equivalent based uh, outsourcing agreements and uh, we will probably see more of uh, price per transactions or price per query uh, basis. Um, another point that is uh, considered from a commercial perspective, as I stated before, is the uh, employment issue in terms of uh, redundancy. Redundancies will have to be taken into account, although whenever we talk about this, this is a very controversial point. There's a lot of commentators that state that artificial intelligence will not lead to uh, redundancy, but in fact will create further work opportunities. But what we've seen from our perspective is that when clients actually come to us discussing for a, an opportunity, a new opportunity for a new contract based on artificial intelligence, one of the main objectives is in fact to uh, be more efficient. Mm -hmm. And within this efficiency, there's also savings in terms of uh, um, uh, resources, human resources used. So whether we're talking about a copyright work um, or a patent protecting an invention, um, until recently the one thing that was common to all IP rights was that it had to have been created by a human being. As machines become capable of decision making, advanced problem solving, invention and even artistic expression, what does this mean for IP rights and who will own a digital brain? Um, Larissa, as the IP specialist around the table, perhaps I can come to you for, for that. What special challenges does AI pose from an IP perspective, particularly in, in the US, where I know there have been some quite significant changes recently to the, the patentability of software in general? I think uh, the challenges in protecting AI from an IP perspective are really going to depend on what AI is, is going to be protected. And I'd like to talk about it in terms of the machine learning aspects of AI and then also the brain-machine interface aspects of AI. So I think probably the easier one is the brain-machine aspects. Mm -hmm. um, if you're making a device that's going to be implanted into the brain and communicate with the brain, 
um, and then have some sort of intelligence associated with it and be able to directly communicate between a brain and a computer. That device itself is patentable, uh, assuming it's claimed the, the correct way. The algorithms that implement that device will likely be patentable, assuming they get around, as you alluded to, the issues we've been experiencing in the United States with respect to patenting sof software algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be, when I started practicing, that it was the UK and Europe that were always difficult to get software patents allowed in. Now it's completely shifted, and now it's the US that is the most problematic in terms of um, getting those types of patent protection. Um, but then there is also an intersection um, when looking at a device that's interacting with the brain and then transferring signals directly from a brain to a computer and interacting with the computer is, is this something that it sort of melds into the second aspect of, a, of the device sort of doing things on its own because now is this device creating human thought? Is this device communicating human thought? Maybe not under the control of the person because if you just think something but maybe don't say send, but it's communicated to you, Gareth, that I am automatically <laughs> sending you thoughts. Is that something that should be patentable? Is that something that is patentable? Is that... Um, something that's in with the subject matter jurisdiction. And not only does that um, implicate the software restrictions that are, that are in place in the US of whether it's, a, it's an algorithm that should not be patented, but also biological processes that maybe are natural occurrences that also are an exception to patentability. So it's an interesting intersection. I think generally will depend on what exactly is claimed in the patent. So what exactly uh, the claim recites and how it reflects those types of aspects will determine in the end whether it's patented. But, but still, those are things that, you know, if the device is created by a company, then the company can get that, a patent on that device and owns that. But then if you're going to how things are communicated between different people through these devices, it may be a little more difficult to say who actually owns that and who actually owns those methods if there is some machine learning involved into it. Are you seeing a lot of nervousness from, from clients around this, this change in this area? Because I think talking to software developers on both sides of the Atlantic, there's always been an awful lot more acceptance in the UK and, and Europe that, that copyright was the method by which software uh, inventions would be protected on the whole and that, that, that patents were not likely to be available. And an awful lot of US-based developers were sort of, if you don't get a patent, there's no point. Have you sort of seen that, that lack of patentability causing a lot of nervousness in this space? And do you think it's stifling development at all? So I don't think that it's stifling development. I think it's shifting the value of a patent. So I think before there was maybe um, a view that a patent was something you would enforce against someone else, um, and it was your assets on your list, your list of assets and the value of your company. Now I'm seeing it as these are not getting issued as as regularly or as as quickly as they used to. There's, I mean, there still is the ability to get software patents issued in the U.S. It's not, it's not. Um, all hope is not lost, but it's certainly more difficult. And now I think clients are looking at it as, what, what really am I looking to get out of this patent? Um, because as a, as a technology company, and even as a startup, are you really going to plan on enforcing a patent? Probably not. But maybe what it can give you is to show investors that you are invested in this, in this technology. You think it's new. You think it's novel. So you want to file a patent on it. Mm -hmm. You can mark it as patent pending. 
um, your website or your, your product is patent pending and maybe deter someone else from entering the market. So there's still things that you can do with just having, even if the patent doesn't issue or doesn't issue for several years until the law sort of shifts back a little bit, mm -hmm. there's still value to having it on file over just getting the patent issued. There's another sort of aspect to all of this, which touches on liability, and I think there's there's the sort of IP aspects of liability, but maybe the wider contractual aspects as well. So perhaps, Janji, if I, I can bring you in on this as well, um, both for sort of infringements that might be committed entirely autonomously by an artificial intelligence system, or for kind of wider liabilities that that system might create. You know, whether we're thinking about a self-driving car or some business process engine that, that sort of goes off on a wild frolic of its own. How do you feel that the, the, the law in both the US and, uh, and, and Italy would, would be treating those sorts of issues? Do you want to go ahead, Jan? Well, yes, but this is actually very interesting, talking about patents, artificial intelligence <laughs> and liability. We always have end up talking about liability because it's a very controversial point as well. Um, if we talk about, for instance, IP protection, um, the debate in, uh, in, in Europe uh, pushes for actually some uh, new regulations because the uh, patent uh, regime might not be sufficient, neither the uh, copyright regime can be sufficient. Uh, at the same time, in terms of, uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, liability, uh, there's very different uh, ways of addressing this. For instance, in Italy we have uh, a, a good set of uh, uh, civil code provisions that uh, uh, address uh, the point, even if such provisions have been thought a long time ago, but they address the issue of uh, the liability related to the pupil or to the trained animal that actually do apply also to an artificial intelligence environment, believe it or not. Um, but uh, all of these requires a common set of rules that cannot be tied to a boundary of a certain uh, jurisdiction because um, like with the IoT environment and like with the digitalized environment also the artificial intelligence of course more often relates to across jurisdictional issues than uh, mm -hmm. uh, domestic matters. So you can't for instance have things treated in one way in Italy, another way in Germany, another way in the UK, another way in the US, another way in Australia. There needs to be some commonality of approach. Exactly. And on, uh, for instance, IP protection, going back to your question, mm -hmm. patent may not be sufficient, copyright may not be sufficient. There should be a middle way to that specifically addresses the point whereby, for instance, uh, there's a, a system that develops a particular solution independently from another artificial intelligence system. Currently, the regulation doesn't really address that point. Do you agree with that? Yeah, so I think what's interesting about the machine learning aspects and um, the neural networks that we've seen is who is the author in terms of a copyright and then who would be the inventor in terms of a patent. Um, because clearly there's someone who wrote the code um, that starts this process whereby the computer can take data and learn from that data. But then once you've gotten how far along then does it switch to is it the computer itself then an inventor? Is the computer itself an author? And then how do our existing copyright and patent laws handle that? Would you look to agency and say that the computer is the agent of the company or of the, the coder such that then whatever the computer was actually outputting was also owned by that company or, or part of what, 
goes under the umbrella of the inventorship or authorship? Or is it something that is completely separate? I think from a liability perspective, I doubt that a court would say the computer is liable, you know, that the computer is responsible because someone has to be responsible. Something bad happens with this. If there's some sort of injury that's occurring to someone, this someone's going to have to be held responsible for it. And I think the most likely person is going to be the company that employs the coder who wrote the code who operates the computer. So I think it will trace back. And from patents, I would think it would either be an agency perspective of saying the computer is an extension of the company, so the, 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 the company would be liable for those acts of infringement. Or you could potentially look to, in, in the US, for example, there's direct infringement, and then there's um, contributory and induced infringement. And I think maybe it would be under those other types of infringement if it's not going to be directly um, the, the company infringing because of what the computer has done. At least the company is responsible for what the computer has done, and therefore could be an induced infringer or contributory infringer. And then once that's been set up, that there's this liability that's stemming from what the computer is doing, then I think you sort of have to say then that the company should be able to own whatever the computer is doing, right? Because if the company is going to be liable for its actions, why can't it also reap the benefit of the things that it's doing? So I think at that point, it would, it would make sense that the company could own the, the types of technology the computer is creating on its own. But I'm not sure that the patent law is quite there yet, or the copyright law is quite there yet. It may need to take some changes by Congress um, or by the courts in order to extend the interpretation. I mean, one of the things that's, that's quite interesting thinking about this from the point of view of systems that might be being used to provide services to other people are some of the aspects that, that customers, particularly in regulated sectors like the financial services industry, etc., would bear here, where they would really want to understand exactly how these systems work both in order to exercise their audit rights, but also in order to protect themselves in the event that the contract comes to an end and they might need to take ownership of that IP or undertake some kind of knowledge transfer exercise so that they can move to another service provider in future. There's an awful lot of these issues impact upon the portability of services or the portability of, of, um, of, of ownership of those intellectual property rights as well. So I think they go to the project domain as well in that sense. I don't know if you've got any views on that, Janji. Yes, this is uh, becoming a, a very fundamental point in, uh, in most contracts, particularly within the regulated sectors. Uh, but it's also, it's also going beyond the regulated sectors because with artificial intelligence, the um, uh, customers tend to help in training the system and the system will then progressively learn. And what we are seeing is beyond the possibility to exercise all the rights and ensure that there is some uh, knowledge transfer back. Uh, there's also more and more uh, um, some issues and some tensions that we've noted in uh, regulating how actually the artificial intelligence can be educated and how uh, the customer can be rewarded for the education that it that has been provided for, uh, for the system and also how it can in any event be published in case it actually through its education, bad education of the system, it affects the overall system also to the detriment of other customer or the vendor. So this is actually a very important point. To follow up on that, Tianji, what about when the machine learns to discriminate? So like if it, if it gets a, a large subset of data and then it starts making assumptions about people within that data set because of where they live, 
um, what their race is, what their gender is, how does that af affect um, how the, the, maybe the algorithm should be changed or, or, sh or can we come up with maybe a less discriminatory application of, of rules to a set of data because now we can control for those things or are those things that maybe we don't want to control for? This is another fundamental point. Thank you, Larissa, because uh, there are issues in terms of potential uh, breach of equality or anti-discrimination legislation through certain uh, processes that actually don't take into account also other elements that normally are more easily taken into account in a good or in a bad sense by the, by the humans, of course. Um, yes, uh, there should be uh, a possibility and uh, there is a tendency to require actually what is the rationale for operating behind the, uh, the algorithm. Of course, the vendors tend to keep that secret mm -hmm. and can tend to keep that as, as secret as possible. We know uh, quite very well-known big vendors that base their business case on that. And this opens to another point that is, uh, that is very relevant, that uh, more and more we will be influenced by artificial intelligence. And if we put that, for instance, within the overall uh, wider uh, press uh, environment, also in terms of the information that we will be receiving, we will be influenced by artificial intelligence. And as there is a risk, for instance, that uh, artificial intelligence can lead to discriminatory decisions in terms, for instance, in uh, uh, providing mortgages or other classic uh, examples, there should be an even wider, there is a wider risk uh, that certain algorithms may in fact affect the freedom of press in two ways. One, uh, making it always more and more difficult to change opinions, and B, in fact, um, uh, addressing in one direction or, deny or the other the informations, and thus uh, making uh, certain publishers dependent upon the, the ones that will control uh, the uh, artificial in intelligence in that scenario. So uh, when we're dealing with artificial intelligence, there should be some coordination with uh, anti-discrimination legislations, but also freedom of press and access to information legislation. A very big thank you to my fellow DLA Piper partners, Larissa Park and Gianji Olivi, for sharing their insights on and experience in an exciting, challenging and fast developing field of work. Hopefully we'll get to have a similar discussion again in future as long as we haven't all been replaced by robots. Do look out for future episodes of the Tech Law Podcasts, where DLA Piper and leading industry experts will explore the influence of emerging technologies in business and wider society.